Bangly 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 bang bang bang. That should be the theme tune. On the Empire Podcast this week, we talked to the smoothest man on TV, who's now become the smoothest man in movies. Yes, it's the owner and proprietor of Ham and Buble himself, Mr. John Ham. And at long, long last, Richard Iowadi will also be on the pod. Ha ha! Uh, all that and more coming up on the only movie podcast that would vote yes in the upcoming referendum to make Bespin independent from Imperial rule. Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast in association with Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, blog, portfolio, or online store for a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code EMPIRE. That offer code again, EMPIRE. No numbers this week, just EMPIRE. Can you remember that? Empire. This week I'm joined by three members of the Empire team, all of whom are at various stages of the Ice Bucket Challenge. First up is our art house guru, Phil DeSimlin, who has completed his Ice Bucket Challenge. He spiced it up by doing it while transporting the cargo of nitroglycerine across a rickety desert road. He's still here, though, thank God. Mm-hmm. Uh, he challenged his brother Nick DeSimlin to the Bucket Challenge, and Nick did it yesterday. He did. Got a cold. Did he? And then pulled out the podcast. <laughs> Sorry. So that's my fault, then. That's your it? fault, yeah. Um, well... It was all in a good cause. Okay, is, he, is he okay? I haven't spoken to him. He's, he's, right? he's fine, yeah. He's fine. Good. He did a good ice bucket challenge. He spent a lot of time in post-production on this. I don't know whether his ice bucket challenge is available for the public to view. It might only be for his Facebook friends. So, Which I is know. everyone, isn't it? Is it everyone? Does he? Yeah. I think he put it on Twitter too. Hey, did people, he? check it out. Check it out. At Nick DeSemlian. It's, it's very good. Uh, how was your ice bucket challenge, Phil? Mine? Yeah. Great. Yeah? What yeah. do you do? You just have a I bucket, just of, ice a bucket of ice over my head. High concept. On a rocket, rickety road. In Latin America. Werner Herzog would be proud of you. <laughs> I think Absolutely. he would. Uh, next up is our online editor, Mr. James Dyer, who has stepped manfully into the breach vacated by Nick and his consumption. Uh, James, you have been challenged to do the ice bucket thing, uh, but you have an interesting stance on it, don't you? Uh-oh. An interesting stance. Uh, Brace well, yourselves. I am, I'm Keep naturally, here a while. naturally uh, not doing it out of protest for uh, uh, Macmillan Nurse's hijacking of the Ice Bucket Challenge from Motor Neuron Disease Charity. So, Oh, that's it. I'm a conscientious objector. It's a objector. principled stance. It's a principled stance. Yeah. Nothing to do with the fact you don't want that ice to work like touching water. your cold, oldy oh, head. I'm, honestly, I'm getting the black lung just thinking about it. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, next up is our geek queen. Helen O'Hara, who hasn't been challenged yet, is this right? No, I haven't. Yeah, just wait. Don't feel obliged, people. Yeah, well, you see, I'm, I'm doing it tomorrow, the day that you're listening to this podcast. I, if you listen to this podcast on Friday afternoon, I could well be soaking wet right now. Helen, you're presumably jumping into bit to pour a bucket of icy, cold, nipple-enhancing water over Jared Padalecki and Jensen Ackles, which I believe is his real name. Is, it, is this true? <laughs> no, this is not true. Uh, Jared Padalecki's already done it, though. Uh-huh. Uh, Jensen yeah. Ackles threw it over him. Did he? Yeah, he did. Did they then flick towels at each other? And, <laughs> and then and... made out. <laughs> yeah, for a <laughs> long time. No. Was this one of your Wincest <laughs> fantasies? Did it actually happen? Did you then wake up? I do not have Wincest fantasies. This is all going horribly wrong. I <sighs> feel like horribly. I'm being maligned Wincest, here. is that what Wincest. it's called? That's what it's called, yeah. yeah. But you're a bit like Dave Bautista, aren't you? You tend to ice bath regularly. <laughs> I do, yeah. I'm pretty tough that way. Yeah. So, whatever. Webs. Have you done it, though? I haven't done it. No, yeah. I haven't been challenged. But all at this point, all of my siblings have been challenged or have done it. So mm. I feel like it's, you know, imminent. Uh, you've been sending questions all week. Uh, here they are. First one is from at Joris Fiedeberg. Or Joris, 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 I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. I believe you are from the Netherlands. Hello, sir. 
welcome. A question for the good guys in our podcast there. What's your favourite villain's lair? Mm. We've never done this. It's got to be Doctor No underwater lair. Mm-hmm. It's good. It's good. Um, yeah, it's good. Yeah. Which sort of rises up, doesn't it? Does it rise up? I can't remember. It does. It does rise up. He's showing off. Yeah. Or You Only Live Twice. You Only Live Twice. The great uh, Ken Adams production uh, is design. Is that the that volcano? One. The volcano. The volcano, yeah. It's inspired bad guys throughout the years. Yeah. It's It's extraordinary. Who here hasn't dreamed of buying a volcano and hollowing it out and living in it? Dreamed? Um. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more of a Doctor Evil person. Uh, mm. I would like a... Literally. <laughs> literally. <laughs> uh, I would like sharks with frickin' laser beams uh-huh. on their heads. That would be, that would be good. Would or Jabba's f- Palace. I'd like Jabba's Palace oh, with a rancor under the throne room. That's a good one. And dancing Twilight girls. It'd be absolutely awesome. That is a very good one. Uh, Syndrome in The Incredibles is a good one. Yeah, it's just it's yeah. all laid out with all mod cons. I have a problem with some some of the more recent villainous layers in movies. I just think they're a little bit dull. Like Ronan the Accuser in Guardians of the Galaxy, that's not a good villainous layer. He just yeah. If Thanos in his Thanos just sits big on a floating yeah. throne, Thanos has an asteroid. I just yeah. What do they do all day? Well, stuff. I mean, you know, probably behind one of those asteroids, he has like a whole big apartment set up. I don't know, something with like a jacuzzi, On, well, dancing I don't know. Twilight slave I think girls. There's a great point to be made here about environment affecting your character. Uh-huh. And I think if you hang out in an evil throne room, chances are it'll affect you at some point. Interesting. You know, so if he, if he went to, I don't know, Maui. He'd probably have turned out nicer. Yeah. It's a nature versus nurture thing. It think? is. I see. They it don't is. make these things like they used to. It's it's about it's about ambition in architecture. I always think they need to look sinister from the outside as well as with, as well as within. Baradour, that's a sinister looking building. Yeah, with a nice view. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous Which views. Nice, yeah, yeah, all over all across Mordor. Mm. I would be tempted to go for for one of the sort of cardinals Richelieu kind of palaces. <laughs> say that again. Cardinals, cardinals Richelieu. 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 Oh, then I say cardinals again. That was. That was <laughs> Well, I was like, I didn't, I wasn't, (laughs) I wasn't trying to pick just one of them. Like, they all have pretty interesting palaces, although often they're wildly anachronistic. But um, you'd have, like, the sort of the Baroque magnificence all around you. It'd be kind of all right. Mm. Yeah. I do love some Baroque magnificence. I actually prefer Gothic mostly, but, like, Baroque has something to recommend. Speaking of Baroque magnificence, the evil Mm. tower of ominousness. (laughs) Yes, from (laughs) the Lego movie. (laughs) Yeah. That's pretty, that's pretty magnificent. That is pretty cool. I would say. That is pretty cool. Uh, what are we? It's not a villain's lair necessarily, but what do we make of uh, the TARDIS? It's not a villain. Oh, you mean the the redo? The redo. Yeah. Deceptively yeah. roomy single bedroom apartment. Yes. <laughs> how I would describe. Yes. Real fixer upper. <laughs> well, hang on. We know it has a swimming. Eleven pool. previous owners. <laughs> um, it's 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 surprisingly roomy inside. I I think I'd I'd quite like to see more of the TARDIS actually. More round things on the walls. Yeah, a lot hey? of round things on the hey? walls. Excuse me, this is this is this is that is my evidence right here that I watched an episode of Doctor Who. Indeed, Indeed. Indeed. Episode. the most recent one. Yeah. I also watched an episode yeah. of Doctor Who. Yeah. It's the first one I I've have watched. plans to think about maybe watching a second episode of Doctor Who. Steady on. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Uh, what are, uh, it's a nice way of segue very very quickly because obviously we you know this is a film podcast. What do we make of the Doctor Who episode? Phil, did you see it? Did you watch? I the... watched about fifteen minutes of it. And why? And why I thought it was 15? rubbish. Okay, so I stopped watching. <laughs> <laughs> and I went. I saw watched some football instead. What did What did you watch? Um, I think it was lower league. Okay. Yeah, I can't remember exactly the game. It didn't stick in my mind, but it lingered longer than the dot two bit I watched. Damning condemnation. Did it have uh, a lesbian lizard? Uh, uh, the lower league game. Ooh, no. Okay. No, it didn't. Helen, what do you think? As, as a re- resident 
Hoovian. Yeah, the closest we have probably yeah. in this booth. I I think regeneration episodes like Christmas specials are always a little bit underwhelming. There's a lot to get done, there's a lot of pressure on them and they tend to sort of crumble under the weight of it, I think. Having said that, it was fine-ish. I think I maybe like Capaldi. Um, my maybe doctor. like Capaldi? Yeah, I'm only a maybe. We're all meant to love Capaldi. I know we are, and yet here I am being a rebel. Um, no, no I think I think I like him. Um, I still have issues with uh, Moffat's writing. I don't generally love it, and I haven't loved it since he stopped being rewritten by Russell T. Davis. To be perfectly honest, I thought Moffat did the the two two of my favourite episodes ever, Girl in the Fireplace and Blink. But I can only conclude on everything since that he was kind of tweaked a bit on those, um, because it, it feels like some of that kind of emotion and some of that kind of feeling and certainly some of that female characterness has kind of gone out of it since he has started writing on his own interesting a gil wrote an interesting review of it he doesn't he doesn't much like it he doesn't Um, much like anything does he he doesn't much like anything it's true he quite likes the bake-off i think Really? I think so. No spoilers for this week's Bake Off. No Apparently spoilers. it's a class. Don't get him started on the custard but control. I, I think, <laughs> ooh, I've heard about this. Let's, let's, let's keep that for next week. Um, I, uh, he made the point that it, Doctor was never really designed to carry the weight of BBC hopes on its shoulders. Yeah. It was designed to be sort of fun and, and, and throw away to an extent. And now it may be creaking slightly under the pressure of having to be this big successful thing um, a little bit. And... Uh, you don't th- you don't agree with that? I, I don't think that's true. I think actually um, it can be that. I think that's what the tenant years kind of showed us is that it can be fun and fresh and have a little bit of sort of sciency stuff, timey wimey stuff going on as well, um, and and be really really entertaining. Um, I, I just don't think that we're necessarily hitting quite the right balance at the moment um, because I think Moffat has a tendency to make these incredibly complicated plots and barely explain them and then if you kind of say well hang on I didn't quite get what was going on there then it se- it feels like you're being sort of tutted out and going well you didn't pay attention then did you and it, that shouldn't really necessarily be the case I think that uh, Doctor Who should absolutely sometimes be challenging and difficult to understand but not difficult to understand because it isn't brilliantly written yeah I know what you mean. I mean, to me, as an out, someone that hasn't really watched it for a long time and just tuning in, and then seeing, I think, the scene where he, where he regenerates and, mm. and try and discovers who he is on Earth. And it was Victorian, was it set in Georgian Victorian, Victorian times? Yeah. Uh, it's like tuning through a radio, trying to get his, <clears throat> get his place in the world. It felt like it, it looks like Panto that takes itself really seriously. It looks like sort of a dramatic Panto, and, and it's not a tone that really appeals particularly to me. I also think that the prosthetic work is pretty bad. Um, yeah, it was a bit sub-Westworld in places, wasn't it? It was. Uh, yeah, I like Westworld. I like Westworld. But uh, Jim, it's like... been a long time, though. Jim, we, we have come yes, on somewhere have, yes. <laughs> The interesting thing here uh, is that if you haven't heard uh, James on the podcast before, James is uh, an obsessive <laughs> consumer of TV. Uh, and yet, doesn't watch Doctor Who. No. Ex- just tell the, the folks at home... Some of the shows you're watching right now. I knew. I see. I'm surprised you didn't take the opportunity to lambast me about my love of Farscape, uh, which involves no, 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 and, no. And dreadful practical effects. But your love amazing. of Farscape lambasts itself. Uh, it doesn't yeah, need any help from me. Uh, what am I enjoying now? Uh, weirdly, I've been uh, uh, catching up on on Hell on Wheels, which is a show that I really, really love. Uh, Poor Man's Deadwood is often what it's pitched at, but it's got Anson Mount in it with a truly magnificent beard. Uh, also, Colin Meaney, who's uh, who's never bad, uh, and Common, who I believe has now left 
the series. But still, that's well worth watching if you get the time. Uh, Neil Laboot, I believe, uh, directed the pilot of the most recent series. Very much looking forward to the new uh, Tommy Schlammy series, uh, Manhattan, which sounds very exciting, about the Manhattan Project. Obviously, there's The Strain, based on Guillermo del Toro's uh, books, which I, I must admit, I've, I've had, I have a slightly odd relationship with. I can't quite get into it and people seem to really enjoy mm. it and I'm not finding the fun. Is there. it Corey Stoll's wig that's putting you on? It is Corey <laughs> Stoll's wig. A famously bald man with a Travolta-esque wig. It's, it's not a great I style. watched some of that as well actually and didn't. I wasn't much smitten by it. Yeah. Unfortunately. It's the sort of thing I'd like to like. Quite X-Filesy but not as good. I'm going to mm. give it a go because the first book in that series I thought was really, really strong. Mm. The sequels maybe not quite so much yeah. but um, you know it, it should be an interesting one to check out. Exciting show coming in, I think, September, The Leftovers, which is Damon Lindelof's uh, new show based on the Tom Perotta book. Uh, that's really, really good. I mean, it's incredibly bleak. And it's a little bit too arty, I think, for its own good. It's almost sort of like Emmy bait uh, on a number of levels. But it's, it's very well put together. It's about sort of a post-rapture small town uh, where lots of the population have disappeared. Uh, but it's not really about that. It's not about the supernatural element. It's uh, it's about the sort of human drama. So that's uh, well worth putting together. The um, the final season of Sons of Anarchy, as you would read in the uh, TV section of our winter preview in the new issue of Empire. Oh, that's that's, uh, that's segued from the segue. Were you? I've segued from the segue yeah. uh, into the TV preview. Yes, uh, Sons of Anarchy, last series. Very excited about that. I was on set and wrote about it in the mag, so do read that. But don't let that put you off. It yes. Is, it is. <laughs> yeah, we should mention that uh, the new issue of Empire is out. Usually we plug it later in the podcast but what the hell we're going to do it now a uh, new issue of Empire is out it uh, came out on shelves yesterday it's on sale now £3.99 from all good and evil and undecided news agents uh, and it's a cracking issue it's a winter preview issue on the cover is uh, Gone Girl by Nev Pierce who uh, has unparalleled access to David Fincher's productions uh, extraordinary feature there's a there's a great Julianne Moore profile there's a profile of Sean Levy the nicest director in movies uh, there's also something about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, um, but the, the front and centre of the magazine, the centrepiece, the infinity stone, if you will, that holds the thing together, oh, is dear. the winter preview. It's absolutely amazing. It has everything you want to know about movies coming out over the next six months. I can't actually find it at the moment. Here we are. You're in it. I'm in it. I'm in it. So we've got great pieces on Exodus, Gods and Kings, on the next Hobbit movie, The Battle of the Five Armies, Angelina Jolie's Unbroken. Uh, we also have pieces on Dumb and Dumber 2, The Man from Uncle, First Looks, all these films, by the way, exclusive First Looks, uh, Alejandro Gonzalez, Inderitus, and Birdman, which has been debuting in Venice to rave reviews Kingsman The Secret Service is in there as well The Woman in Black Angel of Death Michael Mann talking exclusively about Black Hat his new movie we've got Jupiter Ascending in there Heart of the Sea there's Chris Hemsworth looking hunky on page 96 now if that isn't enough to make you part with your hard earned cash there's more there's more as well there's set visits set visits galore how much will that cost me, Chris? £3.99, I've already said that. Uh, it'll, it, it's, uh, there's a Pacific in Black Sea, Horrible Bosses 2, which is very funny, Moonwalkers. We've got Wolf Creek 2, great Wolf Creek 2 set visit, which is very, very funny. We have exclusive Avengers 2 stuff from Joss Whedon and Kevin Feige. We have lots of other stuff as well. This there's a games preview as well, there's a games the TV preview. and the movie preview. This one's Pint of Milk is Sack Braff. Phil did that interview and had a lot of fun doing it. Uh, and you'll have a lot of fun reading it as well. It's, uh, it's great. Plus all the usual movie news, nonsense and reviews. £3.99 I've already bought 10 how about you hey you know what we should do we should do the Buy Empire Challenge okay. right <laughs> for charity where people have to buy Empire right. and have it poured over their heads I'm not sure you've thought this through you, no but then charity benefits somehow yes 
A win for charity. Well done, us. Go buy Empire. It's like one of those. Uh, <laughs> it's one of those yes. flowcharts, isn't it? Buy Empire. It is. Plus question mark equals charity. It's literally the uh, the yeah, the elves' uh, business plan from South Park, uh, which is they have a three three stage uh, plan of attack. One is get underpants. Number two, literally, is three question marks. And stage three is profit. Profit. (laughs) (laughs) Which is still one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Right. Uh, We have another question. We're still in the question section. So sorry. This is a cracking question from at Jake Bailey Rules. You know, Jake Bailey, you do rule. Uh, He says, what is your favorite nightclub scene? Mine is being Jake Bailey, not me. Uh, Mine is the Raid 2 fight. Insane, he says, with an exclamation mark at the end to show how insane it is. Uh, Good call. It is insane. But there's more. Surely there's got to be more. I would put in uh, a shout for the social network before anyone else does, um, because the nightclub scene there is rare in that it depicts the way people actually talk in a nightclub, which I thought was quite cool. What do you mean, Helen? Well, you know, where they have to shout over the music, Chris. Oh, that's right. Yes. Uh, it's so weird. I actually saw a making of um, of that scene. Uh-huh. And because there's no musical playback on a on movie set, set yeah. it's so weird. The actors literally are talking like this and they must feel really stupid. But nevertheless, they get it done. Uh, Train Spotting also does something very, very similar. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. And I think James is probably with me in this one. <laughs> Helen and, and Phil are the clubbers here. I loathe nightclubs with a fiery passion. <laughs> sorry, uh, and sorry I think, we're the clubbers here. Yeah, I, know, <laughs> I, I, was, I was speaking very ironically. In this group, yes. in the, Yeah, in this group, if you've gone to a nightclub, you're a clubber. Uh, Phil is always, you know, he's always down there at the Art House nightclub for the closest I lounging in Suisse against the, uh, the <laughs> look, look, look at this man right yes sorry uh, so the closest I've been to a nightclub I think this year was watching Blade so uh, <laughs> which cunningly segues into yours and mine I think favourite nightclub scene huh. the opening of Blade oh yes the opening of which yes. I didn't yeah it's so good it's, it's so, so good. good it's the so good Kenny Johnson Tracy Lords walking in yes the music uh, which I actually genuinely like, which is weird. I think it's. I think over the years it's gone into my head, and I've gone. This is actually quite. Do you good. know the full title? I don't know the full title. It's New Order's Confusion, the Pump Panel Reconstruction Mix. Oh, that's good. It is. Um, yeah. So then you know, it's a, it turns out to be a vampire nightclub. I don't know if you've ever seen this film, Phil. It's about a vampire. Mm-hmm. There are there are subtitles. Mm-hmm. There are subtitles. many of the characters. Oh, are subtitles. Eastern European. Yeah. The vampire is a metaphor. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's a metaphor for. People who suck your blood. <laughs> yes. Um, and, uh, yeah, and then, then, you know, it turns out she's actually taking him there to, to eat him, and then the, yeah, all the vampires raise their hands to the sky as water drips down from the ceiling, but it's not water, it's blood, and they're all like, oh, my God, what's happening, what's happening? And then Blade arrives in one of the great uh, superhero entrances, and then he proceeds to kick huge levels of ass over the next two or three minutes, and it, it's, it's very, very yeah. cool. I knew nothing about that film going into it. And I was just, I was just like, oh my god, this is amazing. Wesley Snipes is my god. I hope one day I get to talk to him on a podcast. Yeah. Oh. Back in nineteen ninety eight, I thought that. Gosh. Visionary. <laughs> it really <laughs> was. A visionary. The great thing. Train spotting, as I said, uh, also does a fantastic um, job of conveying what it's actually like to be in a nightclub and have a conversation with someone where you can't understand what they're saying. And actually, uh, Danny Boyle subtitled it. It's very, very funny. Well, it makes you want to take heroin. <laughs> Does it? <laughs> really? We're learning a lot today. Well, I really hate nightclubs. Uh, Tech Noir would be my other uh, stab in the dark from Terminator. Good call. Good call. Club Obi-Wan. I would like to go there. A little <laughs> bit more refined. really good call. Yeah. That's a really good call. Is, uh, is do we call, is Rick's a uh, nightclub? It's a club. It's a club. Yeah, it's and a, it's people a, gamble there. There's some music. 
It'd be, yeah. It's the 1940s. It'd be weird if they had DJs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, weird, but cool. And the reboot. <laughs> the remake yeah. we will have. Splash. Play it again, Sam. I think you call it a remix. Yes. Now, hold on. Spin it again, Spin back. No, right. wouldn't it be... Uh, yeah. Spin what's, back? Well, no, what's that? Bow what's Selector. That? Yeah. Oh, Re- rewind, rewind, <laughs> rewind Sam. But <laughs> they might say Bozo. Like, oh that would be a good God. scene in Casablanca. Remake that film immediately. Don't. There's a great answer to this question, actually, and it is Basic Instinct. Michael Douglas, looking a good 55 years older than everyone else in the, in the nightclub, has picked up a Uniqlo jumper, which is. Do you remember the one? I would it's, say it's, yeah. I can't, it's a phoenix. It's, 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 it's a light phoenix. Could be blue polyester. Phoenix, I think, yeah. It's a. It's, yeah. it's 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 one step away from having elbow patches. That's how that's how cool it is. You could it's, see him before going out to sign into the club. He's got a cardigan and he's looking at it and he's looking at this jumper and he's thinking, which one shall I wear? Which one's going to impress Catherine Trammell? Neither. Yeah. Let's be honest. True. But he's gone with the lightweight V-neck and he hasn't been disappointed by it because it's performed well for him. It Everyone in the club yeah. clears a space for him because they're like, <laughs> shit, dad's here to pick someone up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then Tramel's doing sort of <laughs> lesbian Doctor Who style kind of gyrating with uh, with her femme fatale friend. Yes, yes. And they're making eyes. That's right. And I'm thinking, I've been to a few clubs, but I've never been to a club this cool. This and there's amazing. pounding. It could be the what is it? The Panel Beaters remix of some track by someone or other. The whole place is throbbing with sexual tension. Literally throbbing. Literally throbbing. Yeah. It turns out that Michael's forgotten to take his uh, lumbago medication. <laughs> um, and I don't remember what happens after that. I was so blown away They by have that sex. Scene. I'm pretty sure of it. I'm pretty Not sure in they the have club, sex. Though. Not in the club, but there's, there's lots of grinding and bumping and rubbing and stuff. But, Does he uh, do I don't any remember dancing? what I did afterwards. Does he, no. <laughs> Does but, he do uh, any actual dancing? Asleep? Yeah, then, then he takes the ice pick challenge and, uh, <laughs> for charity. Uh, yeah, no, it's a, a, good, yeah, scene, it's a good scene. There's a precursor to that scene, actually, in terms of horrible polyester 80s embarrassment uh, levels. Uh, Fright Night, uh, Tom Holland's cracking vampire movie mm. from 1985. Mm. There's a scene where Chris Sarandon, who plays uh, Jerry Dandridge, the vampire, uh, seduces Amanda Bierce, who is the love interest on the, on the, on the dance floor. And it's so 80s. And Brad Fidel uh, has music playing. Um, and it's just, it's so awful, but amazing. I've just remembered the correct answer. Oh, oh so we kind of have two correct answers. We, we do. Um, Scott Pilgrim versus the world. There are numerous Ooh. great nightclub scenes. She's not wrong. She's not wrong. In, in the, like basically all the fights are in nightclubs oh yeah that's a good point yeah, there, yeah. you're right about the 80s there was a glorious time for enormously huge they were sort of warehouse spaced but they would have gangsters in one corner there's actually a great nightclub scene in Collateral whilst, mm. whilst we're on it um, I was thinking of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang which is sort of that isn't that kind of isn't there a kind of a S&M-y type the people in cages mm, yes, doing is, yeah. weird there is and Robert Downey Jr.'s character is just a bit like what the a bit dazed what is going on here yeah. which is how we'd all feel I think in that situation yeah. uh, before we got into it surely the uh, the Crazy 88 sequence in Kill Bill Volume 1 takes place in a nightclub doesn't it to an extent is it a nightclub or is it like a some form of Geisha Emporium <laughs> I don't know we're splitting hairs here surely maybe <laughs> yeah you're right you're right yeah that is a really good one uh, there's loads but I think we've uh, we've uh, we've we've come up with some belters. Ali couldn't be with us today because he's doing other things. But he suggested heat the mask. Yes, the mask is a very good. That's yes. good. That's very cool. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. And as you said, Phil, uh, Michael Mann's Collateral has a cracking nightclub shootout. In fact, very very good indeed. In fact, Michael Mann, I think, is actually one of the few people who also gets it right on movies. There's good nightclub scenes in. Miami Vice, and there's a uh, really good one in uh, in Heat as well. It's not 
where Al Pacino doesn't go to like rave the rave his, rave his head off, but there's a good nightclub scene where he enters a nightclub. Oh, and of course, the Copacabana in Goodfellas is a nightclub. And Gilda, whilst we're going back, yes, Gilda, with the with the striptease with the single glove. Oh yes, Gilda. Okay, wow, blimey. Uh, if you think we've missed anything out, and <laughs> you always do, uh, please uh, tweet in your uh, suggestions to us at Empire Magazine. That's our address. On Twitter, uh, use the hashtag Empire Podcast. You can Facebook us as well, We are where we are, Empire Magazine. You can email us, podcast at empireonline.com. Right, blimey, that was a lot of stuff. Um, time now for our first guest of this week's pod. He's an actor, a writer, director, a thinker, a tweeter, and quite possibly a lover and a poet as well. He's Richard Iowadi, a folk hero around these parts for his role in creating Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, for being Moss in the IT crowd, and for his work as a film director with the excellent submarine and the double, which came out earlier this year. It's now on DVD and Blu-ray and the artist formerly known as Dean Lerner came in recently to talk to Ali and myself about that film and all sorts of other lovely stuff. Enjoy. Uh, we're delighted to be joined in the pod booth by the uh, co-writer and director of The Double, Mr. Richard Iowadi. Hello, sir. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, you know, up and down. Good Mostly day. up today. Are you okay? Mm, up slightly down? Know, well, let's explore it during okay. the podcast. Absolutely. This will be the psychiatrist's chair of podcast. <laughs> that, that would be good, yes. We'll get something out of this. This is in honour of the DVD release and Blu-ray release, I should point out, of The Double, mm-hmm. right. which is not coming out for another couple of weeks. We're recording this on a Wednesday in the second week of July. Gosh. Mm-hmm. So my question has to be, did you see that ludicrous display last night? Well, I, I'm only vaguely aware that there is football on. <laughs> um, I, where, how far into the event is it now? We're three games from the end. Three games from three the end. Three games from the end. Okay. And uh, we're very close to semi-final stage at the moment. Who is in the tournament? Uh, well, Brazil, yes. who are hosting the tournament, are no longer in the tournament. Good they were, gravy. They were, they were thrashed last night. By whom? By Germany. By the Germans. 7-1. Can you, can you believe That's it? That's a lot of goals. <laughs> it certainly is. They could have had five fewer goals and still won. They could have done frightfully greedy. Good. That's like so, loading a a hot dog with ketchup till it spills down your arm. <laughs> it's almost exactly like that. Uh, how wow. have you managed to avoid football, given that it's been I quite prevalent for a month? Don't watch it. <laughs> That's how I've avoided it. I I just don't watch it. I, I stopped watching football in the late eighties um, when everyone started getting fit, which I believe is a phenomenon that coincided with people like Jamie Redknapp mm-hmm. when people looked handsome I parted ways with football <laughs> I liked Jan Mulby who I actually I do believe is a handsome man yes um, Peter Beardsley yes that was my era okay. I'd watch football with my dad as soon as it became associated with a kind of mid-90s Britpop laddishness I could mm-hmm. no longer brook it. I, I agree with you 110%, uh, as footballers might say. Uh, so basically, people who looked like they could just walk off a park and onto a football pitch, that's the sort of people you liked. Yeah, I liked people who really looked uncomfortable with having their faces transmitted publicly. <laughs> and so, you know, Jamie Redknapp, I believe, is quite a nice chap, but he's too handsome, too handsome for, mm. for my liking. And I I like the idea that everyone ate white bread cheese sandwiches and smoked at half time, and I like that kind of a feel. As soon as people looked like they had muscle definition, and you know, the whole thing went awry for me. And also at university, 
I remember pe- I, I only watched football with my dad and that was very nice. As soon as I found out that people watched football in groups of men and vomited everywhere and just smelt, it was just horrendous. Why would you want to be... I mean, why would you want to be, as mm. a man, mm. around a group of other men vomiting? I don't think it says it on the invite. I don't think it's a... That just seemed that seemed to be because uh, you you don't have a TV in your room, do you? Yeah. You have to go to a then yeah. that's true. Internet, you that's have true. to go to a, a common room to watch television. Could you met like a group of other men? Yeah, things I was trying to avoid my whole life. Other men, I had to go and be among <clears throat> them, smelling of piss and their own expellent, and watching handsome people achieve things. <laughs> so you know, I couldn't do it. I had to turn to you know indie bands. <laughs> I, I, how about film for you, though, Richard? Because I've noticed over the years that, that people have become more physically fit in film as well. Uh, there's a right. If, if you look at uh, if you look at main uh, at a lot of actors these days, okay. they take their shirts off. Yes, they've got abs. Yes, very very defined, pronounced abs. They work yeah. out an awful lot. You you look back at someone that, for example, like maybe a Victor Mature. Sure, he takes his shirt off. Yes, he has flappy man boobs. Yes. Uh, so does that dismay you as well? I I like people who are built like Elliot Gould, um, <laughs> and yes, it is worrying, especially when it just keeps going like a crocodile. The yes. abs, it's very weird. I tend not to be drawn to films where men take their tops off a lot <laughs> um, so it hasn't ruined my enjoyment of late period Bergman there wasn't a lot of topless nudity I noticed in the double not a lot of top half off no. bottom half off is more likely in something <laughs> I do than top half off I thought Paddy might first name terms obviously yes. might in one brief snippet as his character whip a top off whip mm. a top off <laughs> yes not necessarily his yeah again you know Paddy's very comfortable with being clothed so yeah I I think yeah when did that happen again I think the mid 90s I think the mid 90s mm. there's a lot of top male halves coming into the forefront um, and um, yeah I, I, I don't know that anyone's benefited <laughs> Not one person. Yeah. Uh, this is a curiosity question, and you're probably just going to give me the answer no. Sure. But there is a 2002 thriller called The Double, starring Richard Gere yes. and Topher Grace. I'm telling you, it's more recent than that. Is it more recent than I that? I think it might be 2012. 2012. Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. Gear and Topher Grace. Oh, yeah. Finally together. Topher, yes. Gra- Topher Grace would have been a child in 2002. Yeah. And, <laughs> I feel a fool. A yeah. little bairn. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Toad didn't really come into his own till um, '09. Yeah, <laughs> but um, I, I'm aware that film exists. I have regrettably, and to my shame, not seen it. You're just worried about maybe before making your the double, you might be <laughs> taking on too many influences and kind of contaminating your vision. Partly that. I mean, also, you know, obviously, as soon as that film went into production, they pulped all copies of Dostoevsky's The Double because it had been superseded. <laughs> so. It was very hard to even track down a, a print copy of the novel. Mm. That's the that's the sadness of it. And one day, of course, I'm sure you'll read it. One day I will open that book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, at what point did the, uh, did the double start for you? Because obviously after Submarine came out, were you, do you have a, a, a pile of scripts in a drawer? A lot of, a lot of writers tend to have unmade scripts ordered. Right, yes. Um, the, my drawer contains scripts that should not leave that drawer. But it started in 2007, and it was Avi Kareen's idea to adapt the mm-hmm. book. And he did the first draft, and I met him. You know, the producers had optioned his script, and then I met him in Nashville, where he lives. We didn't just choose it as a difficult-to-reach <laughs> location. Um, I think I was I was directing a Vampire Weekend video in New York, so with a an eye on conserving fuel... I thought that would be a good time to meet him. And then um, he did another draft based on um, some thoughts we were having about what, you know, what it needed. And then I did Submarine, mm. but we kept working on it during it. And then it was after Fin Submarine that I did a draft and then we worked on it together. And then, yeah. Because uh, I, I read another interview with you where you said that uh, roughly one in 20 drafts of every screenplay is okay. Now, is that is that true, or does that mean the other nineteen are unreadable bilge? Or um, no, I mean, certainly, I mean, Arvi is a very good writer, so his script was very good, um, and he's very precise. I write quickly and sloppily, so I have to rewrite. <laughs> okay, um, but he writes more slowly and more precisely. Um, but it takes me a long, a, a number of drafts. Yeah, mm-hmm. like. Um, I just like Woody Allen does two drafts or something, you know, it's very quick and it's good straight away. And I'm, uh, yeah, I take, I'm not good and it takes a long time, <laughs> which is the worst combination. So, yeah, the thing is, until it works, it's rubbish. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's all very well having some good things in it, but unless it comes off, it's still no good. But how do you know when it's good? You don't exactly. You you have a sense, and then very often, two weeks later, you go, "Oh yeah, it's still not any good." <laughs> um, but it it just I don't know. That's the big question. How do you know if it's any good? It's hard to tell. <laughs> you 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 know when it's bad. I think. Okay. You and you keep going until it stops feeling as bad as it was. Right. <laughs> like, it's just, like life. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why, in a way, knowing this about you uh, as well, uh, I'm surprised you, you you seem to have taken to Twitter quite well. Well, Twitter is a repository of things that have no place elsewhere. <laughs> so, um, really, yeah, I mean, I've n- codifying nonsense isn't a particular <laughs> problem, but I, I doubt anyone said, I've really come to know the soul of this person by Twitter. <laughs> I think you come I, to know the arse of people on Twitter. Yeah. yeah not I, I know what soul. it is to be Richard Iwadi. Yeah, I don't know that it's, yeah, I don't know that future biographers are going to be <laughs> combing through tweets for insights into <laughs> their subjects. Do we even need future biographers? Because obviously you have a new book coming out. Indeed, which is, uh, yes. Which I imagine reveals your soul. It's his... Uh, piercing series of insights <laughs> it, yeah it's it's you know it's a it's like those books that Faber 
do mm. a lot, which are directors' interview series, you know, Kislowski on Kislowski, or, you know, the Truffaut Hitchcock one, yes. uh, which they didn't do, but I guess the Truffaut Hitchcock one is the big one that started them. <clears throat> and um, it through doing interviews, you find yourself in possession of a persona mm. which has no use to you. <laughs> and so it seemed would it be interesting to write something around this persona and have and have um me interview myself about the craft of directing but it's everything in it is made up so there's no there's nothing real in it and okay. it's all um stupid but <clears throat> it's really about the idea of you know taking an incredibly pompous self-regarding version of me um, and I interview myself and end up, you know, I don't want to spoil it, but there is a quite an erotic scene, <laughs> you know, about two-thirds of the way through. Wow, it's bound to happen. Is it fair to say that there is a persona of yours uh, that would be your panel show persona? Sure. Do you find well, I yourself... I think everyone has a panel show persona. It's just that the tragedy of modern life is that there are so few panel shows on which people can exhibit. That's the one thing I've noticed about British TV. Is that's that why, that's why we're enough. having so many troubles with the riots. Um, I think if people were able to quit more, yeah. I think a lot of that aggression could be effectively uh, dealt with. Rise up and quit. Exactly. What they should really do, instead of a barricading, they should just put a long tables there and have Jimmy <laughs> Carr at the end of it. Laughing. And exactly. then laughing some more. And then turning to Cameron and go, we'll see you after this break. And then everyone could disperse, no damage done. People go home, have a biscuit with mum. But this is a problem. It would take so long to get it through Parliament. I think that's probably the only reason it hasn't happened. It's, it's just constitutionally problematic. And the trouble with Parliament is that is Funding the world's biggest panel show, when you think about it. And also format rights. I mean, it's a minefield. Mm. But, yeah. For me, you're infamous. Sure. If, I, if I find myself analysing a joke and going, hang on, let's actually see how this joke works. Right. I'll go, you are doing Rich Laiwadi. Stop doing that. Right. That's his thing. Well, no, I don't think anything's my thing, apart from, you know, my possessions. And even then, <laughs> we'd have to get into some kind of Marxist debate about that. <laughs> no, I, I think that's a fairly standard mm -hmm. move. Yeah, I mean, in a way, I always presume if I'm on one of those shows that this will be the last okay. time I will be on it, so why not sink the ship? So that's... I guess my approach. Well, that's a mantra for life. Live, live your life like the last panel show you'll ever yeah. be on. It's like Bergman, mm. make each film as if it's your last. And I think you know, <laughs> I think Jupiter has a similar mantra. <laughs> uh, do you look upon acting in the same way? Because you seem to have, I, reading interviews with you, you seem to have be, be quite uh, down on your acting abilities. Mm. You've just won a BAFTA. Well. I think that's about the part and, you know, the show. Um, so, you know, I've worked with actors and I know what they're doing is not what I'm doing, which is queuing up until the other person finishes speaking to <laughs> say the thing that was written down for me to say. That's right. not acting. Okay. That's, um, yeah, I mean, that could be, in the right context, online shopping. But... Um, it's just, it's hard acting. You know, no directors become actors. 
lots yeah. of actors become directing <clears throat> or they don't become directing because that would be <laughs> becoming a verb and you can't do that with current technology but a lot of actors become directors yeah it's, it's i find it hard i also you know ha i have stage fright in front of audiences the mm. it crowd is in front of a live audience as graham will tell you if you ask and you know that's there's a certain level of adrenaline and panic and fear to that okay that um i wouldn't like to do every day okay but which is interesting because uh you had signed on for the US version of the IT crowd. Yeah. Now, had that become a thing, Yeah. they do 22, 23 episode seasons over there. You've been doing that every week for <clears> six months a year. That would have been interesting. Yeah, but think about it. Working 22 days a year is not <laughs> some kind of sob story that is going to hit the front pages. I mean, that is about as little as you can work annually yes. and be solvent. Also, just statistically, I felt, and I felt marvellously vindicated, is that they make a lot of pilots in America. So, And I think about 5% of them go on. Mm -hmm. And of those 5%, there's a further dwindling pool that make it past 6 or make it past 13 or make it past a season. or You know, it's very rare. And so... It just felt so statistically unlikely mm. that this would go forward, um, that it was worth the experience of see I've, of seeing how an American sitcom is made. It was also shot on the same soundstage as Citizen Kane, wow. which to me was um, a fun to go into that studio. I'd never been to LA before. You know, it was kind of it was a bit like just doing a pl a play again or mm. something. And I thought, this is very, un you know, the idea of not doing something because you're worried you're going to turn into Jennifer Aniston, <laughs> you know, you just go, look, I think you'll be fine. I think global celebrity may elude you. <laughs> Do not overly worry. Fear of extreme excess is not something people should indulge in, I guess. It just seems like, God, I'm really worried that I'm going to sort of be in an internationally syndicated show that becomes part <laughs> of the culture. I mean, I thought this may not happen mm -hmm. as, you know, that's kind of like a reverse hubris. On or, that bombshell. Yeah, no. <laughs> On that existential crisis, <laughs> note of existential crisis. Well, I'll let you go, Richard cool. Thanks for the pleasure. Much. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Okay, finally we got Richard Iwadi on the podcast. We've been sitting in that one for a while. Apologies to Mr. Iwadi. Uh, movie news time. What have we got? Okay, well, there, uh, there's sort of rumoury sort of news today um, about Guy Ritchie's planned King Arthur film. Now, this is envisaged as the first of not the traditional trilogy of films, a double that, a double trilogy, a sextology. I beg your pardon. I know. Sextology? That sounds a bit wrong. It sounds right like now. a subject you shouldn't really study if you're under 18. Anyway. Um, it's it an ology. <laughs> it is an ology. It is an ology. So the story goes that uh, he's planning six of these films. Uh, the first one will, of course, boot it all up. And he now has a cast in mind. Charlie Hunnam has reportedly been offered the role of King Arthur, um, which would set him up for quite some time to come. Um, and it could be a bit of a Pacific Rim reunion because he is rumoured to be uh, co-starring, potentially, with Idris Elba, who would be playing Sir Bedivere. Uh, who in this version is a kind of an older uh, figure. He's a friend of Arthur's father. 
um, Uther Pendragon, of course, was Arthur's fa- father. Um, no, and it's Lufa Pendragon. Ufa, 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 Ufa Pendragon, and and he would be training the young knight. Is the idea? So, uh, so yeah, the the current working title is reportedly Knights of the Round Table: colon, King Arthur. I hope they do call Colon. on King Arthur. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they will then have like you know Knights of the Round Table. Dance Sir Lancelot. <laughs> no, Knights of the Round Table, Sir Lancelot, Knights of the Round Table, Sir Gawain. Maybe that's what they're thinking. Who knows? Who knows what they're thinking? <laughs> Who knows they're what they're thinking? They're thinking that people will go and see six films by King Arthur directed by Guy Ritchie. So God knows what they're <laughs> thinking. Honestly. <laughs> hey, King Arthur's stories have endured for over a thousand years at this point. We should be so lucky. No, I, I, yeah, I agree. But six movies? I know. It does seem a little presumptuous, I'll be honest. It's one of those things that even if you are planning six movies, would you not keep it on the down low? Yeah, but everything's now about shared universes and massive franchises and, and you know, unsipping your pants and, yeah, and letting your franchise fly out. Good so Lord, Chris. I just, you know, and just, and I know, but, you know, after Phil talked about Michael Douglas wearing a jumper, I'm very sexually charged right now. I can't help it. Um, but there's, <laughs> I can't. Please I can't. try. Can someone please pour a bucket of ice water over my head. I don't care if it's for charity or not. Just do it. Um, yeah, I just, I, you know, that, that's a big thing these days. Like you have to go, no, it's not just a film. And it's no longer, oh, uh, we always thought of it as a trilogy. We always thought of it as a 20-part multiple series <laughs> that unfolded over TV and breakfast cereals and toy boxes and all sorts. Yeah, uh, I guess. I just, you know, it seems a little maybe cart before the horse. However, yeah. I mean, as I say, King Arthur's stories have endured for a thousand years. There are great, great sort of sub-stories within the Arthurian legends. You know, there's Tristan and Isolde is in there, which mm-hmm. was filmed just in an okay fashion a few years ago. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, there's Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. There's all sorts of crazy and potentially wonderful stories that they could tell. Uh, and I guess they have to make sure they get the casting right first time. But this seems like, you know, um, Charlie Hunnam can play young and, and you know, warrior-like and wear a beard well, which <laughs> I feel like should be part of it. So I feel like this could work. You've met Charlie Hunnam, haven't you? I have met Charlie Hunnam on the set of Sons of Anarchy. Yes, indeed. Great story, James. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing I would say, right, is that... <laughs> he was very Arthurian. What do you want me to say? He was, although, to be fair, he was sitting at the head of a round table. So, uh, although although it had a reaper sort of engraved on it. So. How good would it be if it was just Arthur being interviewed by journalists for 90 minutes? I met Charlie Hunnam on Pacific Rim, and he does have, in real life, he has a really weird accent because he's been living in LA now for quite yes. some time to do Sons of Anarchy. He so he has the American accent on screen, and then traces of it remain. And then occasionally he'll go really, really Geordie, yeah. yeah. And occasionally he'll go sort of neutral British, and it's it's a it's a bizarre accent. It he, is, you know, it's immensely disconcerting. I found this because we we had a sort of a round table interview at one point, and when the American journalist spoke to him, he was very uh, Sons of Anarchy esque Californian. And then when I asked a question, he went very sort of mid-Atlantic, slightly British. And then when he started reminiscing about his family, he went full on Geordie. And it was, yeah, it, well, it's, it's Hawaii, very the lads and all that sort yeah. of stuff. Cool. All right. Well, listen, good casting. Yeah. I think it'll be fine. Dip their toe in the water with the first one and see what happens. But six movies? You never know. You never know. But I presume the fact that now Guy Ritchie's doing Man From Uncle and now this... Does that mean Sherlock Holmes is dead, that franchise? Or do you think they'll get another director to do it? Because they had Drew Pierce on scripting duties for the third. You're going to roll your eyes. I like the first two films. So Didn't quite, roll my eyes. I like them too. Right. I quite enjoyed them. And they were. They have been writing a script for the third one, obviously. 
I'm having meetings, which Guy, Pier- Guy Pierce was not involved in. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case you were wondering, Just some guy, some guy, mm. Guy Guy Ritchie was involved in. So I I I wanted to meet the third one. Yeah, I mean they might listen if he's he's fairly far on with Man from Uncle. Presumably, it's out early next year, so that one's pretty much done. He could move on pretty quickly to one of these potentially. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. if we're casting this, then it must mean that this must be his next film. Potentially, although these are only rumours at the moment, so who knows? These are only rumours, indeed, indeed, but uh, fairly well-sourced ones, I'd imagine. Right, so who's next? What's got? What's more? What's happening? When I'm 76 years old, I'm planning to watch even more low-league football, but Ridley Scott is 76, and he just wants to make more movies, a lot more movies. Um, he's obviously got Exodus coming up, and his his appetite for filmmaking is not waning because he is talking about adapting a self-published book um, in the last couple of years by an American man uh, called Andy Weir known as The Martian which is being billed as Castaway meets Apollo 13 Ooh. Mm. Uh, or Enemy Mine but with only one person <laughs> and that person is Matt Damon uh, who'll be playing a stranded astronaut on the planet Barsoom uh, better known as Mars and uh, it's going to be his survival tale basically it, the, the book opens with the dialogue of the astronaut saying I'm pretty much fucked which I think you can see on, on a movie screen. I think that would be a good opening to a film. Here's a man in the middle. Here's a man in the middle of a personal catastrophe on a dusty red planet occupied by Tharks, I suppose. And uh, and he needs to find a way to stay alive long enough to be rescued. Um, and I can see Ridley Scott making it, and he has a script for it. And he's talking about possibly shooting it. I guess soundstage work in Budapest, and the location work on Mars. No, hold on, I misread that. <laughs> Sorry, Possibly. for Mars, uh, Wadi Ro- Jordan. Uh, so he's a script for that. So what does where does that leave Prometheus two? Where does that leave Blade Runner two? He said this week that, that the leave? script for Blade Runner two has been written and it's very good. He had, he has said that. Yeah, uh, Prometheus two, Blade Runner. They want to get Harrison Ford back. Harrison Ford's obviously uh, recuperating from his bad Star Wars injury. So he's got many many orbs, planets in the air. Should we say? Balls in the air, mm. and um, this one could be the next on the, the next cab on the rank. Um, so, if we're expecting another Prometheus or another Blade Runner, it might be good to cool your jets a little bit. Uh, it looks like The Martian is probably going to be the easiest to put together, and uh, you know, after Exodus, that might appeal to him. Just a one-hander. The rate he's going, though, he'll probably have all three out by next year. So he is firing them out. Yeah, you never know. You never know. Interesting. I have another rumour, unfortunately, nothing particularly concrete here. Uh, this one involving Matthew McConaughey. Um, right, right, right. Indeed. Uh, and The Stand, Josh Boone's uh, adaptation mm. of The Stand coming up, and they have rumoured McConaughey with the antagonist role of Randall Flagg. Now, really, this is something that very much interests me. I'm a huge fan of the miniseries, obviously where Jamie Sheridan plays uh, play the sort of cowboyish Satanist figure Randall Flagg in it and I've long lamented the upcoming adaptation because I think it'll be dreadful but with uh, Matthew McConaughey as Flagg suddenly I'm interested suddenly I might want to see suddenly I'm interested I'll be honest I read Matthew McConaughey linked with the stand and I thought he was going to play Stu Redmond indeed but this is more interesting like him as Stu Redmond I could care less about do you know what I mean but as Randall Flagg this is this is Utterly great casting. Mm. I really, really hope this happens because um, Flag is meant to be charismatic and likable. That's the whole point of, you know, the devil. He's not supposed to be 
you know, f- straight up forward scary. He's supposed mm. to be initially seductive. Yep. Um, and, you know, Matthew McConaughey is a friendly guy. He's a man's man, a ladies man, a man about town. I think he could do it. I think it'd be awesome. Should we Should we just explain for people who haven't read The Stand, Chris, you're probably best place to... Uh, do this your favourite book, isn't it? One of them? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I adore The Stand. Uh, all 1,400 pages of it in the unexpected <laughs> version. It's uh, Stephen King's masterwork. Yeah. Um, it is a post-apocalyptic tale about a disease that ravages mankind, known as Captain Trips. Uh, a small percentage of the planet's population find themselves immune to it. Uh, and in America, at least, uh, the survivors find themselves drawn into two communes. Uh, one is a force uh, for good. Uh, they, they're, they're led there by visions of a, a person called uh, Mother Abigail, uh, who's a very uh, old black lady. And uh, they they set up a commune in Boulder, Colorado. The uh, bad guys are drawn by a vision of Randall Flagg, uh, who leads him to Las Vegas. Of yeah. course. On on the on the surface, it's maybe not the greatest, uh, not the most subtle metaphor. But yes, Las Vegas <laughs> does turn out to be a, a you know a den of iniquity. Uh, and uh, the scene is set for the ultimate battle, I guess, between good and evil, as to see who will truly inherit the earth. It's a fantastic book. It, it's it's way more complex, and way more thrilling and gripping, and it's got fantastic characters. Uh, the heroes and the bad guys alike are, are flawed and human and wonderful, and it's 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 just an extraordinary work. And one of the great things about it is, as well, is um, sorry, it's it's just an extraordinary work. Uh, what uh, what do you think of the the miniseries? Obviously, Rob Lowe, Gary Sinise. Not a fan. Really, not a fan. I really enjoy that. I, it's okay, but do you come to did you come to it from a, a a place of loving the book? No. Also, I feel that Stephen King's alliance with Mick Garris, who is a fairly mediocre director, is not one of the most. It's not. It's not one of the things I enjoy most about yeah. his career. I think they, their hookup has led to a lot of just average, middle of the road stuff. If he'd really teamed up with a really cracking horror director in that one, it might have been. It might have been much better. I don't know how Josh Boone's going to do the stand. Mm. I think he's talked about doing it in one movie, literally in one movie. How? I don't know how he's going to do it. So many directors have taken a, a, a crack at it over the years, including uh, George Romero. Do you start know. at the end of the plague? I mean, that would help a bit. You start there, you could start there. I honestly don't know. I don't envy him at the task, but he seems to be very, very confident about doing it. And this casting is great. Really, really great. Uh, and it's got me on board. And, you know, could Matthew McConaughey pop up as Flag Len in other uh, Stephen King things? Because one of, the, one of the great things about Stephen King's universe is it, it is it's a shared universe before shared universes became popular. And if you read the Dark Tower series, and that binds everything together, and Flag pops up in that as well, and he's almost the 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 the, the big bad, if you will, of the of the Kingiverse. Uh, and it'd be nice to see whether Flag would just make little fleeting appearances here and there. An interesting thing about the Kingiverse is that it's now expanded to the work of his sons as well. Um, there are little links from some of Joe Hill's books and I think Owen King's books as well back and forth and actually now Stephen King is I think mentioned well, one of Joe King's characters as well it's all getting very very complicated well this is this is very very cool because um, in Under the Dome which is now a TV series but in the book Under the Dome the, the lead character Dale Barbara uh, says that he served with a guy called Jack Reacher <laughs> so uh, if if you like then that means that the King of First is also the Child first, uh, the Reacher the, the Reacher first. Yes, it, is Reacher wonderful. is at the center of the universe, and everything else expands from him. Uh, we all knew that Reacher is the Big Bang. Uh, I think I think that'd be great. That's that's a really fun little Easter egg. I think in that book. I'm now itching for a crossover. <laughs> I really want Jack to Reacher punches it <laughs> to death. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs>
You think Jack Reacher would take any shit from the, yeah, from the Overlook Hotel? No, he wouldn't. No, he wouldn't. <laughs> Amazing. I, I, I want to see that. Yeah. Jack Reacher versus uh, The Stand. Amazing. He would He would be immune. He'd right. punch through the dome. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, anything else? Do we want to talk about this Underworld reboot? The rebooting Underworld? I what just the can't hell? bear to talk about it. I just, I, like, I, I'm not like a huge Underworld fan, but it just seems like... Why does anyone need to reboot <laughs> that franchise? What are we so attached to that we have to reboot it? Can we not just like if you want to do another Underworld, that's absolutely fine. Go ahead, you know. But doesn't it seem like you could just do another Underworld? Do we have to tell one of the stories that's already been told in that universe and repeatedly multiple mm. times in other universes? It feels like I can't pick up any story involving vampires nowadays without finding werewolves involved as well. So it's not like it's a fresh concept anymore. It doesn't feel like, ooh, this is something that we haven't seen before. And that, that's, uh, that's not close over the fact that each of the Underworld films was terrible on a galactic <laughs> scale. So I was really... trying to be diplomatic, but well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think I've eschewed all attempts at diplomacy this week for some reason. Um, yeah, I I really can't wait to not see those films. How so many How many have there been now? Is it four or I five? I believe there have been four. I think I've only seen three. Yes, I've seen three of them. I lost the will to live actually yeah. after the and, third. I mean, just to put this in context, I've seen all of the Resident Evil films, right? <laughs> so, yeah. So your tolerance is reasonably My high. My tolerance yeah. is high. So in what order should I watch Blade and Underworld films. <laughs> well, I would say, first of all, you watch Blade, then Blade 2, and then you stop. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, you watch Blade Trinity up to the point where Ryan Reynolds calls Parker Posey a cock-juggling thundercunt, yes. and then you stop. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that works too. Okay. Um, and then you watch the Underworld films by being in a completely different place to where they're being shown. That's probably the best way okay. to see them. Uh, right, that's it for the movie news. Obviously, we would obviously, obviously at this point, we would plug the new Empire. We already have, but in case you've forgotten... Is out now, £3.99, New Empire, lots of good things in the magazine. Um, I, think that, I think that covers it. It's very good. All right. Second guest time now. Uh, he popped in resplendent in what I'm presuming, Helen, was a fine suit. Um, no, he was he was dressed down with a fabulous beard and a cap. Fabulous beard. I saw, I saw him this morning on BBC Breakfast and I went, that's a nice beard. Isn't it? That's a nice beard. Uh, he is, of course, John Hamm. His early stab at screen stardom was as a contestant on The Dating Game. That came to naught, but he's done all right, I think, as Don Draper in... Is this right? Uh, Mad, Mad Men. Is that a Mad thing? Men. Mad yes, Men. Mad okay. Men. Uh, over the last couple of years, he's been tipping his toes into the movie waters with supporting turns in the likes of the town. But with Million Dollar Arm, he steps fully into the limelight as a baseball agent who recruits cricket fans from India to play in the major leagues back in the US of A. Helen and Phil went along and were, were charmed by John Hamm and his manly beard. Enjoy. Welcome to the studio. Thank you. Um, we're here to talk about Million Dollar Arm, of course. Of course. How much have you learned about cricket as a result of making this? Well, it's interesting because, you know, my character in the film sort of disparages cricket. But uh, but I actually am uh, a bit of a fan. I I, um, I was over here last summer during the Ashes, so I, I kind of had a little bit of an insight on into the sort of long-form test match thing. While we were shooting the film, we were over in India, and they had uh, uh, this thing called the IPL, which is these very, very condensed versions of uh, of cricket 2020 i think they call it or something like that but it was like two hours and 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 it was eminently watchable and they would have it in prime time every night so i'm actually uh i'm actually sort of a fan it's uh i i, I want to get to see one live because i understand there's tons of drinking there is a lot of drinking the ipl the 2020 is like speed it's like the speed, speed cricket the speed yeah dating yeah. cricket isn't it whereas a test match can go on for what feels like weeks 
Well, D is indeed, right, yeah. Your character in the film delivers the line that cricket looks like an asylum has opened its doors and the inmates have been allowed to invent a sport, which I thought was funny but also a bit mean because (laughs) we love our game. You're a baseball guy, though. I'm a baseball guy, but to be fair, I did not write the movie. You know, that's the, but, you the, the, said it. but I did say it, but my character said it. So, yes, it's uh, yeah, I, I am a baseball guy. I'm, a, I'm from uh, the Midwest. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. And, and it's uh, we have a we have a very successful baseball team. there, the St. Louis Cardinals. And um, and uh, I am a fan. Fair enough. You were at the World Series when you was an 11 year old where you saw. The- I have been to several World Series. Yes, we were. We, the Cardinals made the World Series and won the World Series in 1982. And I was 11 years old and I was in attendance. That's pretty cool. It's the World Series, but come on, it's like the championship of the United States. We just think we're the most important things <laughs> in the world. I heard once it was named after a newspaper, and that's why. Oh, maybe. I hope that's true, because that make it like totally I like that version of the story way better. <laughs> so how was it filming in India for this film? Hot. Right, um, yes. India, I'd never been to Asia, much less India, but uh, I, I, it was so it was all brand new to me. And we shot in May, which is the hottest month in in the year it's the month before the rains start so we had a very specific end date which was when it started raining because we knew once it started raining it wasn't going to stop raining for probably two and a half months so uh we got all of our shots in and we got all of our uh scenes in but it was a it was an experience to say the least it was a it was a sense assault on the senses but positively and negatively i mean it was um it's so exotic and so foreign and so different and obviously on the other side of the world um but it's it's uh it's a fascinating place it was uh it was really quite remarkable to uh uh, what i would end up doing like at the end of the of the day when we finished shooting i would just get online and like go down go on a wikipedia fest about like what i had learned that day like these neighborhoods that i had heard about or this particular religious things that i had heard about or or uh, certain uh uh, art artwork that i had seen so it was it was all brand new and it was just fascinating to do and the fact that i got to to work there and i got to actually you know get paid to go there was was awesome the best part of being an actor. And you've been like a font of, of Indian trivia for your friends since then, just like... <laughs> yeah, ish. I mean, I did not see the whole country. It's a very big country. but And, and we only went to, to three cities. But uh, but I did I did learn a lot about Mumbai, which is an amazing, amazing city uh, with an incredible history. Um, so it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it used to be called Bombay, which in, in, uh, in Dutch meant beautiful bay. I didn't know oh, that. I did not either. We learned something now today. You know. Do people come up and start quoting bridesmaids at you to beat them? Oh, I get that a lot, yeah. In India as well? Not in India. Uh, nope, not in India. Although I did, when I landed, uh, when I first got there, I hadn't even cleared customs yet. I was I was walking down the the you know the terminal and, and coming off the plane, and um, there were these three young men that were walking toward me, Indian guys, and the middle one stopped and pointed, and the two other guys kept walking because they were like, what are you doing? And he said, Don Draper. And I mean, I just got off a plane. I looked like, you know, something that cat dragged in. But uh, I was like, oh, <laughs> hi. And the other two guys had no idea who I was. But the middle guy did. And he, he was probably 17 or 18 years old. And he just was completely arrested by the fact that Don Draper was in the Mumbai International Airport. <laughs> wow, Which, to be cool. fair, is, is definitely a, a fish out of water. I got a couple of quick baseball questions. Sure. Quick sure. questions. One that's a question raised in the film. I'm not sure it was ever answered. In which, how many innings does a pitcher have to... You have to go five innings. Okay. And the second one was, because it is a film about 
the speed, the velocity of pitching, and you have thrown the first pitch at a Major League Baseball game, which looks nerve-wracking and extreme. <laughs> What's your fastest pitch? Oh, I, I, I don't have very much velocity. I, I, my shoulder and elbow are quite old with, uh, with rickety tendons and ligaments and things like that. So I probably couldn't break 70 miles an hour. I, I, I would have to warm up, and then I would probably hurt myself. That's the speed limit, though, isn't it? So Fair enough. Just say, for legal yep. reasons. <laughs> Um, how much you were playing? Obviously, JB Bernstein. How much was he around? You know, did you meet up with him in, in advance and then just sort of try and focus on the script version? Or uh, he was he was around quite a lot, and it was actually quite nice. I mean, obviously, we're telling you know we're telling a, a, a long story, and we're trying to condense it down into uh, you know a two hour film. Um, so it was helpful to have have somebody there that that could fill in the blanks, so to speak, of of, of, of some of the stuff. And but but it was also really nice to to just meet the guy. I mean, he's an interesting interesting character, and uh, wildly intelligent, incredibly active mind, constantly thinking of ways to solve problems that haven't even come up yet. You know, he's he's a he's a very very smart guy. And it was also really nice to have uh, Rinku and Dinesh um, around. They were they're completely lovely lovely young men, and uh, it was really cool to see you know see the actual product of 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 this this endeavor you know these kids that were plucked out of relative obscurity at 17 who are now in their in their mid-20s and uh and in rinku's case is a is a legitimate major league prospect yeah it is it is kind of nice because i think you're worried during the film you know you're kind of not knowing anything about it which i didn't going in but you're kind of worried are they, are they exploiting them are these yeah. guys going to be thrown you know aside as soon as their purpose has been achieved but it's good to know that they're still kind of doing well as a result yeah and 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 a big part of it is is jb's the journey that jb goes on because he he begins it as as something a little bit mercenary <laughs> Uh, and then is, finds himself sort of profoundly moved and affected by not only these two boys and their incredible work ethic and their and the incredible responsibility that they feel, but he feels the responsibility as well to 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 uh, to really shepherd them through and take care of them. And I think he he had kind of an epiphany of of, of realizing that, w- that what this little weird family that he started uh, meant to him, uh, which was profound. And uh, and and it and it it he'll tell you the same thing. It it changed his life. And you had some great supporting um, players as well, and Bill Paxton, the mighty Bill Paxton, and Alan Arkin, <laughs> yes. a Hollywood legend, um, who plays a, a hilarious kind of narcoleptic <laughs> baseball guru who can tell how much is the word heat, how much heat is on a pitch from, yes. from just just through hearing. He just sleeps through most of it. Um, did you have? Did he tell you any of his any of his tales? Because he's written books full of his scurrilous tales. Of uh, Hollywood Alan, stars. Alan, it was a. Uh, Alan is remarkable. Um, he and he's he's obviously been working for decades and is is a incredibly witty, sharp, um, quick witted uh, person and an absolute joy to act opposite uh, because he is so incredibly present. Uh, you know, one of the original um, improv guys, Second City guys. So uh, it, it, it's it's an absolute joy to work with him, and I would I'd love to get another opportunity to do it. We had a, we had a very good time. I read uh, just when you mentioned Second City, I read uh, Lake Bell saying that you uh, used to kind of recite old SNL sketches. <laughs> What's your favorite one? God, I, I could I literally couldn't point to one. I, I probably just point to the most recent one that I found myself being obsessed by. But it was a Will Ferrell sketch where he plays. Uh, <laughs> 
I'm virtually certain that uh, that Will and Adam McKay wrote this sketch, but he plays this doctor who sort of speaks in non sequiturs and does horrible, horribly inappropriate things to his uh, to his, his uh, patients. So it was pretty great. Um, speaking of SNL as well, I have to ask, how is Hammond Buble doing these days? Is it still the hot restaurant in town? Hammond Bubbly? <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, New York's finest emporium for uh, pork and champagne. Um, going great. Yeah, going great fantastic. guns. Yeah, yeah. Business is booming. Did you get, you've talked about your love of British comedy in the past um, a number of occasions. Did you get a chance to watch the Alan Partridge movie. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned that because on the way over here in the car, I saw I saw a poster for it, and I haven't. You're talking about Alpha Papa. Alpha Papa. Uh, I have not seen it, and and I'm I, I literally saw this poster, and I was like, I have to see if that's on demand in the hotel room when I get back because I really want to see it. It said the tagline was something like 24 hours, 12 hostages, one partridge," and I was <laughs> like, "I'm in." <laughs> Yes, the, the, what was it? There wasn't, there weren't many guns. There was a gun in the film, though. So you know, a gun. Yeah. you know, it's an action action thriller. Um, I, I read also that you you were asked to play Green Lantern. That you you're, I mean, because I think you're a comic book fan, but maybe a little bit suspicious of comic book movies. Is um, well, I mean, there are good ones and bad ones, like any kind of movie. Um, it should be kind of, it should be sort of uh, explained a little. I w- it wasn't like I was offered the part of Green Lantern. They were, they were. I was one of many in contention. Uh, you know, it, it, it's not like uh, it's not like they go throwing those movie franchises around like uh, like apple seeds. Uh, there's a lot of people that have to weigh in on them. So I, I should uh, I think it's been sort of overreported that I was offered that part. I, that was definitely not the case. But um, you know, I, I most recently just saw Guardians of the Galaxy. It's a phenomenal movie. Uh, so yeah, there there are good ones, and and I'm looking forward to the Avengers. I mean, it's like I I'm a big uh, comic book nerd, so I uh, I can't wait to. Uh, to see them and and hopefully they're good. That's the that's the one you hope for. The gar- Guardians, I was blown away by. Yeah, I don't think anyone expected quite what. I mean, that is an obscure there. title, yeah. and they and they uh, and they really crushed it. It was it was really cool. So, which ones did you? Which ones are your favorites? Which one do you, ones do you go to? Growing up, I was a big X Men fan. Um, I was a big fan of the Frank Miller sort of era of Daredevil. That was a really good one. Um, he also wrote uh, Frank Miller and uh, an artist named Bill Sienkiewicz wrote a. Uh, uh, a, a very short, like mini series called Electra Assassin, which was really cool. Um, you know, Thor had a really couple really cool storylines. Like I don't know, it's like I just for a little kid growing up in the pre in the heady days before the internet, uh, they were kind of that's kind of all you had. You know, there were three channels and they didn't have very many good things on them, and <laughs> so comic books were like an amazing way to uh, to to escape and and and. And you know, kind of get your imagination going. So, if you were to do that thing that um, like Daniel Radcliffe has done, and and Peter Jackson did this year at Comic Con, going in disguise as a comic book superhero, who would it be? Oh man, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> I I saw a lot of people going dressed as Walter White. Uh, I think that might be a fun one to do. Although I need I need a mask. I guess I need a mask. Um, maybe I'd go as Rorschach from the uh, from the Watchmen. That's kind of a cool-looking mask. It's a very cool mask. Actually, I think uh, Brian Cranston wore his own face mask. Did he? To go around the floor at Comic-Con. Amazing. So, you know, that's the easiest way to do it. (laughs) (laughs) We'll trade. (laughs) Actually, speaking of Don Draper, I mean, uh, you were... I think you've you've read the script now, I guess, for for the final. Match. We shot it. It's, it's, you've, you've it's in the can. It's in yeah. completely done. So how how are you feeling about it? Um, you know, it's uh, it's the end of a very long journey. It's an eight year, 
endeavor that we uh, finally finally put the uh, put the finishing touches on. Um, it'll air in April. I'm very excited for people to see it. Um, I obviously can't talk about it because I don't want to spoil anything. No, no. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's nice. It's, it's, it's nice to have it in the rear view. I mean, yeah. we all knew it was coming. We all knew the end was coming, but it's nice to have it in the rear view and it's nice to move on from it. But, but at the same time, it's, it's a significant acknowledgement of what it meant to all of us is, is, is you, you can't say enough. It was, it's career defining for all of us. So, but, but that said, it is nice to be <laughs> done. Yes. Is there a slight tinge of disappointment that you didn't get to go into the 70s and get Don Rocky and those <laughs> handlebar moustaches? Who says we didn't? Hey. <laughs> oh. Where were you when you got the final script? Did, did you have, was it, I mean, it must have felt strange to get it for the last Um time. Yeah, I was on set and it was just, was delivered. Okay. Yeah, it was like, it came to the thing and I was like, oh, Was the man okay. who gave it wearing special black tie? No, 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 it's just, no. Uh, it was a PA. Came and knocked okay. on the door and Not said. Not even on a silver Here. tray. No, oh. it was just a... It was the last of uh, of uh, last of the series. I always wondered about about Don Draper, and, and, and I know that Cary Grant is someone that you, you know, obviously we all kind of look up to Cary Grant. But um, if there was, if you ever saw any parallels between the Roger Thornhill character in North by Northwest, um, I, mean, and, I mean, yeah, there's drawn. there's certainly uh, there's certainly parallels to be drawn. But uh, you know, it's uh, Cary Grant. Was, you know, the, that character was the wrong man, sort of by mistake, and Don is the wrong man by choice. Uh, in many ways, so that's that's probably the main the main difference. And just finally, what have you got coming up next? I hear you've got a role in Minions for one. Yeah, Minions will come out next uh, next summer, but uh, that will be uh, that will be preceded by the, the finale of Mad Men. And uh, and I don't know. I'm I'm honestly like I've been on vacation. It's been kind of great. I've been uh, <laughs> I've been growing a beard. <laughs> it's a very and, nice uh, one. And, tr- and and yes, it's uh, it's 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 way more gray than I remembered it being, but. Um, such as life. Big grooming tip. Shave the bottom and trim it. That's what I think a lot of people f- tend to forget. Like, you don't want the neck beard happening. That's not so much. You want to keep it like right at the old jawline, or not the jawline, but whatever that thing is where you're, you're the kind of fold. The I fold guess. right there. That's when you. That's where you want to trim it too. You know, conditioner and all of that. <laughs> I don't. I don't do any conditioner. I, I. I've. I do. I do find food in it sometimes, which is really depressing. Well, there's a note to end on, John. Um, thank you very much. Picking food out of his beard since <laughs> that is early August. Unavoidable in the beard world. <laughs> and now it's time to wax lyrical about our sponsor, Squarespace. As ever, here's Ali Plum with The Science Bit. Hello and welcome to The Science Bit of the Empire Podcast, where Ali, the editor, that's me, by the way, tells you just a little bit more about our sponsor, Squarespace, and how to make use of their free trial and discount deal. Thank you for listening. Always appreciate it. Anyway, if you're not already in the know or missed Chris saying it earlier, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, blog, portfolio, or online store for a free trial. That means no money. And 10% off your first purchase on new accounts. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code EMPIRE. You want more details, though, and that is understandable. So just for you, here are a few more reasons why you should use Squarespace. For starters, Squarespace is very easy to use indeed, as well as being user-friendly and doing all the tricky stuff for you. Search engine optimization, hosting, and making your site mobile, tablet, portable device ready. Just for starters, they've also got a huge vault of pre-prepared designs and style options to be getting on with that you can tweak to your taste later on. Sign up for a year and get a free domain name. Yes! Enjoy an on-hand support team working 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, for you. 
And this is all for $8 a month, which, as I mentioned earlier, a free trial and 10% off your first purchase with the Empire Podcast's very own offer code, which is, sing it with me. Don't sing it, please. I'm not going to sing it. EmpireByAsquarespace.com. Again, thank you for listening. You are awesome people. I appreciate every one of you in an individual and unqualifiably wonderful way. Goodbye for now. Okay, so let's start the reviews with Million Dollar Arm because it's only polite. Yeah, we Phil. should. Yeah. Well, it's interesting this because this is the second film this year um, that seems to have taken Joe Maguire as a very direct touch point. Uh, the other one, John Carney's Begin Again, um, had Mark Ruffalo as a as an age as a A and R man who is sort of beginning again his career um, in a in a bad place. Um, and it's a similar story here. This is based on a true story. John Hamm playing this guy Bernstein, J B Bernstein, who has an epiphany. Um, that there's a huge untapped market because nothing spells romance in a Disney movie than tapping a new market. Um, th- that being India, as you mentioned, uh, where f- millions and millions of, well, billions potentially of cricket fans are potential consumers of baseball and baseball merchandise. So the idea is that he gonna, he's going to go out to Mumbai, he's going to go around India, he's going to try and get two kids to come back to the US and try out to play Major League Baseball. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of fish out of water, culture clash, comedy stuff here. Uh, it's an old school feeling Disney movie. It's one of those one of those films that we grew up on that you can't quite remember the titles of. <laughs> you know what I mean? Those films that you, you saw, we saw we saw when we were kids that we liked. I can only remember the Amazing Journey with the animals. Um, I don't even think it was called that. The though, Incredible was it? Journey. Incredible, exactly. Yeah. You see, I can't remember what they're called, but you remember seeing them. It's like one of those ones that Jeff Bridges was in when he was a teenager. Exactly, like those movies. Those sorts of movies. So it's a very much an old-fashioned feeling Disney type of family film this and it delivers on that level I would say John Hamm is great I mean if there's any question that he can hold the screen the big screen as well as the small screen there shouldn't be because he can um Lake Bell I liked a lot I think she adds much much needed ballast to this film she's the neighbor who's a doctor um that isn't hot enough for John Hamm's character because he only likes super 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 superficial supermodels um, and Lake Bell isn't quite on that level I think it's one of the problems I had with this film <laughs> some of the characterizations are a bit strange uh, Lake Bell's clearly head and shoulders above J.B. Bernstein's character in many ways because he's a massive douche and you're with him for the whole film until he reaches the point of, of a sort of um, maximum douchiness. He reaches maximum douchiness, and then he has the revelation, the epiphany, and he okay. realizes that there's more to life. And he he, he has a redemptive arc. Um, I had a bit of a problem with that, and you, you probably have a slightly different perspective on it. So I'll pass it over to you in a sec. But for me, it was very watchable, enjoyable. Where these films, what these films don't have that Jeremy Maguire did have was Cameron Crowe. And I think a director who has the ability to, 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 to create, you know, real feeling characters and real authentic emotional beats, uh, doesn't, they don't grow on trees. Mm. Um, I don't think either John Carney or the director of this film, Craig Gillespie, mm. quite managed on that level. Um, it's a true story. It's an interesting story. It's still going on, this whole idea. It's a kind of a, what would you call it, a reality TV challenge in the US still. In, in, in India still. So, um, yeah. And, and a lot of the bits of the film that are the most sort of fantastical are, are, are the true true aspects of the story. So, you know, it, it is a feel-good film about real people. Um, and uh, we gave it four stars. And I would go one less, personally, <laughs> but there you go. Yeah, it's a it's a very it's a very warm and fuzzy kind of version of the of the story, I think. Um, but having said that, you know, from everything I've read about it, it is 
pretty faithful to the truth. And certainly Bernstein does seem to be that guy in real life. You know, he doesn't seem to have tried to sand off his own rough edges um, to make himself more likable, certainly. And and, and if anything, he comes across possibly as less likable than, than the real guy seems. So um, so fair play to that. I think this is... Um, John Hamm's shown a lot of anxiousness to get away from the Don Draper kind of stereotype. And there's a little bit of him still in this, I think, in that he's a, you know, he's a very kind of seductive, charming character whose whole whose whole thing is presenting himself in the best possible light. So there's a little bit of kind of familiar territory for Ham, but at the same time it moves away enough to show that he can do other things and that he should be taken seriously. So and it is really sweet and, and as Phil said, yeah, some of the some of the most kind of the bits that you're sure that Hollywood made up are the bits that are actually from the real account. Mm. And what can you do? We should mention the two the two Indian leads, um, who are played by the life of Pai Shiraz Sharma. Um, and Slumdog Millionaire's Madhu Mittal, and uh, they're both very good. Yeah. I like them both. Good, good to see uh, Siraj Sharma getting a a good role yeah. after Life of Pi because he was excellent in that film. Cool, excellent. Four stars in for Million Dollar Arm. Uh, next up, it kind of came out last week. It was uh, out in London last week and it previewed around the country on Monday. It is Frank Miller and Robert Rodriguez's Sin City Two: A Dame to Kill For, which, wow was killed for at the uh, US box office. It died a death at the US box office at the weekend, which I think pretty much guarantees we will not be seeing a Sin City 3. But James has seen a Sin City 2. And what do you think of it? I have. I, I, I need to preface this by saying that the first film is widely lauded. It's got loads of fans. People genuinely enjoy it. I've always had a bit of a love-hate relationship with it. So I went into this one perhaps not expecting a lot. And... Actually, it was surprisingly entertaining for me, uh, which is damning with faint praise, but let me tell you exactly what it is. So, um, as is the title, A Dame to Kill For, it's based on that, which I believe is a six-issue run from the Sin City series that Miller did, uh, combined with a slightly shorter one, Just Another Saturday Night, and two original stories. Uh, So it hops a little bit about, and unfortunately by cherry-picking from these various places, I think the most confusing part of this is the chronology of it. It's very unclear uh, where in the Sin City timeline any of these particular stories appear. Um, Some of them seem to take place after the first film, some of them take place before the first film, some of them could take place in another dimension. It's really kind of hard to work it out. But it's very, very very similar. I mean, if you enjoyed the first one, you will like this one. It's got that same very sort of uh, neo-noir comic book style to it. I mean, it's shot beautifully. It looks looks absolutely fantastic. And it is sort of bedecked with larger-than-life characters with a few substitutions. The late, great Michael Clark Duncan, uh, replaced here by Dennis Haysbert as Minute, the uh, the giant imposing bodyguard uh, with the metal eye, although in this film we see how he gets the metal eye. Oh, um, I've always wanted to know how he gets the metal eye. Indeed. Thank God this uh, film exists. Clive Owen, placed here by Josh Brolin. This was uh, a quite interesting one because it's, uh, it's a story that takes place prior to the events of the first Sin City although you don't necessarily realise that when you're watching it and there's there would have been an excellent opportunity to have shall we say Josh Brolin and Clive Owen in this yeah and they didn't and I don't really understand why in fact Nick was going to be on the podcast this week uh, he was on set of Sin City 2 and mm. he said that at the time he was on set that they were actually talking about getting Clive Owen in for a cameo uh, just to show up you know that you know Josh Brolin in the in the graphic novel he is facial reconstruction surgery yeah. so you could get away with that so one minute he's Josh Brolin the next minute he's he's Clive Owen uh, but for some reason I guess it didn't happen maybe he was too busy in other stories there's uh, there's there's Jessica Alba's uh, returns as the stripper Nancy and she has a kind of uh, revenge 
uh, plot line, which is after Powers Booth's reptilian senator Rourke uh, for the death of Bruce Willis. He was uh, that yellow bastard's father, if mm-hmm. people don't know. Uh, that's not particularly well sketched out, that one is. It feels very, very thin. This original story, uh, is it? Uh, yeah. yeah. And I, 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 that, that's not one of the stronger points, to be As perfectly honest. Someone pointed out online, she's angry, she's going after someone, but Bruce Willis committed suicide. So, I, you know, it's, I, know, I yeah. know what you mean, but yeah. it's just, it seems, you know. It's an odd one, and Bruce turns up in sort of ghostly form to oh, stare meaningfully at her quite regularly. Um, but I mean, really, and there's there's a really really fun one, which is another Rourke one, but with Joseph Gordon-Levitt sort of playing poker and uh, and and trying to um, get the better of the evil Rourke, who really is very very sinister in this film. That can't be underestimated. What's his lair like? Um, his lair is basically a back room in a club. It's it's not very lairy, but there are lots of poker chips. But really, this is Eva Green's film. I mean, if we're honest, it's called A Dame to Kill For, and that's really what it is. She plays the absolute femme fatale who lures in her uh, her former flame, played in this, obviously, by Josh Brolin, to try and get her out of an abusive relationship, uh, and nothing is quite what it seems. She is sans clothes for the majority of the film, but she really does smolder. I mean, she's absolutely fantastic and just really, really evil. So it's worth watching just for her. I mean, but ultimately... It's been nine years since Sin City, and I think when the first one came out, not only was it really violent, really shocking, really punchy, and incredibly true to a very loved source material, it was very original, you know, it looked very striking, and this is the same thing nine years later, but with less good stories. Um, Really, that's what it comes down to. I think if you really love Sin City, you will probably enjoy this as more of the same. It's Mm. been a while. You're probably due another fix. I think if you're looking for something that matches the highs of the original, uh, this ain't it unfortunately we gave it three stars i think that's fair it is a good film it is not a great film neither though is it a car crash just feels like it's missed this moment in the zeitgeist and it also feels a little bit like an attempt at a cash grab if you know what i mean yeah it it feels too late yeah it feels cynical we felt this a little bit at comic-con didn't we because we sat in on the sin city 2 panel uh and it felt a lot like most of the people there were holding seats for the marvel panel well they were (laughs) <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The Sin City 2 panel was one of the lowlights of Comic-Con. It really was. Uh, it, no one was interested. It was very hard to get the crowd up. There was a really interesting Frank Miller article in Wired, uh, which basically hailed that panel as the return of a conquering hero and people were, were fating Frank Miller and giving him a standing ovation and whatnot. None of that happened. It was just basically, oh, is this panel happening? Great, when's Marvel on? That's essentially what most people were thinking. At that point, and you could gauge the lack of interest in that movie, and we, you know, we like to try and think we keep our uh, our ears close to the ground here at Empire. You can gauge the lack of interest in this movie pretty much from the off. And but I also think that Robert Rodriguez, in particular, now has to go away and have a bit of a rethink. If you look at his box office record since the original Sin City, it is car crash after car crash after car crash. Not just in the box office terms, but in creative terms as well. I don't think the man's made a good movie since the original Sin City, and this is a man who is a really, really talented filmmaker. But I do wonder if he's just retreated too much to that little enclave that he has out in Austin, Texas, where he is his own boss and he gets to make films that he wants. And films are frankly say nothing. They're empty-headed uh, entertainments, and uh, there's nothing to them. And uh, I just think he needs to go away and work with someone, probably someone else, on a script that actually has something to say and isn't just a genre entertainment. I something that, that pushes him a little bit. Something that pushes him as well. Yeah. And maybe just have some strictures that aren't just about going to your garage with the green screen and getting some of your mates in and shooting them and, and making it look the way you want to do, uh, the way you want it to look, which is fine. It's great. You know, I, no one's knocking his artistic 
uh, ambition, but a missed opportunity, I think, as a filmmaker. Uh, but I think there's still time to to uh, correct the course. Anyway, three stars for three season stars. two, A Dame to Kill For. It's a cracking week this week in terms of the quantity of releases. Certainly, that's one thing. There's something like nine wide releases in the UK. We can't review them all. We don't have the time, sadly. Uh, but let's talk next about Obvious Child. Uh, Helen, you've seen this one. This is a very interesting film, isn't it? Yeah, it's a very unusual sort of a romantic comedy, um, which basically starts off the the heroine, if you will, Donna, who's played by Jenny Slate, is a stand-up comedian and who's obviously doesn't make her living that way. She has a job as well, um, but she's she's trying her best. Um, and she has a one-night stand with a guy and finds herself pregnant and decides to have an abortion. And, uh, and you know, between the time where she decides to have the abortion and she's, you know, waiting to actually have the appointment, uh, the, the guy kind of comes back into her life and they realise they quite like each other and she's sort of, you know, uh, trying to find the right moment to say, hey, by the way, um, this is happening. Hmm. Um, so it's, it's a really, if you think about it, I mean, just explained in those terms, it sounds like a really heavy yeah. emotional film. It sounds like something that has the potential to be hugely controversial and hugely um, kind of, uh, you know, troubling in some ways. On the other hand, um, it's actually beautifully handled and is a weirdly charming and funny film. Um, It doesn't make a big issue out of its issues. It just kind of goes on with its life. And uh, it's kind of somewhere between, I mean, Ollie in our review has compared it to sort of Juno meets Girls, which is the easy easy selling point. I'm sure that's what they'll be trying to kind of pin it as. But it's just, it's a really smart and a very clever film. And it's like no other rom-com you've quite seen before, which is a strange thing. So yeah, we gave it four stars. Um, This is definitely one to look out for if you get the chance. Mm -hmm. Gillian Robespierre, who directs as well, I would say, is also a, a, a talent to watch. She wrote it and directed it. And it's it's very, very funny and very good. So, uh, yeah, four stars. Four stars for Office Child. Yeah, if you don't necessarily know who Jenny Slate is, she's popped up on a lot of stuff over the years. She's very, very funny. Uh, she's probably best known over here as the monstrous Mona Lisa, the sister of the equally monstrous John Ralphio, played by Ben Schwartz in Parks and Recreation. She's not in many episodes, but she does make an impact when she pops up. So it's good to see her getting a, a, a substantial role as well in this one. So four stars for Obvious Child. Recommended. Lastly this week, because we're really going to take some time to talk about the films we think you should go and see this week, rather than the ones that maybe you shouldn't, uh, is Night Moves, starring Jesse Eisenberg uh, as an eco-activist. Interesting thriller, this, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's a, a very unusual one. So it's uh, Jesse Eisenberg as Josh. Uh, Dakota Fanning plays Denna, his, his partner. They're environmentalists who've um, been working in like agricultural communes and health stores and stuff, but they want to do more in terms of activism. So they uh, hook up with an ex-Marine, um, played by Peter Sarsgaard, um, to blow up a hydroelectric dam. Mm-hmm. Um, and the film is kind of in kind of three sections so there's the sort of the the procedural of how do you go about blowing up a dam what do you need how do they get it um there's the sort of there's an edgy sort of paranoia to to that bit in particular just because of they've got to try and get all these bits that they need without being sort of discovered as they go then there's the actual mission of the title or mission itself uh that the title is actually from the boat that they use um and then there's the sort of the aftermath which is almost kind of underplayed. It's not sort of, you know, you, mm-hmm. you kind of expect some big spectacular fallout between the three of them. You expect the, the violence to kind of escalate and that's not really what happens. But uh, 
but yeah, the, the, so the sections feel a little bit uneven, but at the same time, there's a real edge to this. There's a real sense of paranoia going through it, real suspense, and uh, and yeah, and a great kind of central central mission, I guess, at the heart of it. Uh, good performances, as you would expect from these three. They don't really. None of them are very talkative, it's which not, is yeah. a weird, there's which no, is a weird balance. There's no grandstanding going on. No grandstanding. Yeah. yeah, I mean Jesse Eisenberg, especially who a guy who is most known for talking all of the time and everything he does, is uh, is you know barely says a word in some scenes. So uh, so yeah, I think uh, Reichart, the the director who did uh, Kelly Reichart, who did Mears, Meek's Cutoff mm-hmm. most recently, does a very good job of kind of walking the line. She doesn't sort of hold these people up as heroes uh, she doesn't sort of try and explain them away she just kind of makes points about what they do how well it works and whether they're you know get, leaves us asking kind of whether these are good people whether these are really idealists at the end of the day so um, so yeah very good stuff looks gorgeous as well we give it four stars fantastic and uh very much a recommendation on that one so do go and see Night Moves if you can there's a whole bunch of other stuff out this week we're going to mention it very very quickly in Dispatches there's uh, Chloe Moretz deciding to hovering between life and death in If I Stay which is based on a young adult tearjerker novel Uh, and that is a two star film it's okay a bit wishy-washy sadly there's also The Keeper of Lost Causes uh, which we gave three stars to there's also The Grand Seduction which is a comedy from the uh, the excellent Canadian director Don McKellar the guy who was uh, behind Last Night that fantastic uh, sort of apocalyptic tale uh, stars Brendan Gleeson and Taylor Kitsch sadly just two stars for that one uh, there's also Let's Be Cops which we gave three stars to. It's a, it's been a hit in the, in the states. Another cop comedy, not quite as good as Twenty Two Jump Street, but pretty funny despite all that. And then there's the horror film As Above, So Below. Not to be confused with the porn film As Above, So Below. Um, and we You're gave, so proud of that joke. I'm so proud of that joke. I, I only got five retweets, honestly. So I'm I'm just giving it a bigger audience. Um, so um, uh, we gave that three stars. And Phil, you'll be delighted about this. Yes. The five star film this week. Yes. Re-release of The Cabinet of Dr. Oh, Caligari. I love The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. I love The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. My favourite furniture-based films. <laughs> it really is. It's really an is absolute, Go and see it. Fantastically influential. It is. Uh, in many, many ways. The sequel, uh, The Billy Book Case of Dr. Caligari. A huge, a huge uh, influence on, on Tim Burton. Yes. That movie, along with uh, most German expressionism. Um, so Danny DeVito's Penguin and other characters, beloved characters in more recent years. Uh, you want to see where they came from, go check it out. Absolutely. And that's it for this week's Empire Podcast in association with Squarespace. Join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by Ace 27 presenter William Fichtner. He will be here. And Dan Stevens, formerly of Downton Abbey and now star of bone-crunching action horror The Guest, will also be here. Mr. Downton Crabby, now I guess we can call him. No. Which is a friend's joke I've just no. stolen. How exciting, though. It's very exciting, isn't it? It's it is very exciting, yeah. Until then, it is goodbye from Helen. Tiddly. It is goodbye from James. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Philip. Au revoir. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to pour a bucket of ice cold water over my head. Joy unconfined. See you next week. Bye bye. Bangly 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 bang bang bang. <laughs>